Today's episode of the Ringer MLB show is brought to you by Mattress Firm. Connecting sleep to sports isn't easy, but here goes. Mattress Firm is America's neighborhood mattress store, and it should be your goal to check out the deals they have going on every day. Their mattresses are softer than your rival team's defense. They get a 10 out of tennis. You'll love your new bed. Okay, terrible dad jokes aside, head to mattressfirm.com and save 15% with the code PODCAST15 at checkout. This code is only valid through April 10th, so don't miss out. Your budget stretches farther at Mattress Firm. Seriously, farther than a gymnast before a floor routine. Now let's start the show. Hello and welcome to the Ringer MLB show. My name is Michael Bauman. I am a writer at the Ringer. As always, we are brought to you by the Ringer Podcast Network. You can check out the Shack House podcast from multiple pods this past week from Augusta, uh, where my man golf Satan himself, Patrick Regis, won the Masters. Bill Simmons appears on those. He will appear on this podcast later. Uh, and be sure to check out theringer.com, where our written content includes a story of mine on Austin Hedges, Padres catcher Ben Lindbergh on Shohei Otani, Zach Cram on Jose Batista and Ben and Zach will also be on this podcast. We're going to talk about Otani with Ben with a surprise run in for Bill Simmons later, plus Bill's thoughts on the Red Sox and the American League and the nature of fandom and baseball. We really run the gamut. But first, as always, it's Zach Cram on to talk about the first place New York Mets. Hello. So going into the season, I think my view on the Mets, which I didn't think was particularly controversial at the time, was they had enough pitching to be kind of a high floor team, but they still had a couple holes in the lineup. They were going to bring Adrian Gonzalez out there for 162 games, or at least that was the plan. Um, but they, I, I sort of saw them as as a little bit better than 500 team. But so far, everybody's been healthy uh, in their starting rotation for the first time uh, ever they're getting their five aces rotation this week. The Nationals uh, are around 500. The Phillies uh, keep tripping over their own feet, and all of a sudden the Mets are way off the front in first place. So, what gives? I mean, is is it just their pitching has been that good? What's the the story? Yeah, I think you know how in fantasy there's always that one owner who only picks boring veterans and nobody says anything about their team during the draft, and then you look up in June and they're in first place with like. Robinson Cano and Jose Abreu for their offense. That's kind of what the Mets did in real life this offseason. They were one of the few teams that actually spent, and not just on one U Darvish, but on a lot of different players. But they were all kind of boring veterans. They signed Jason Vargas. They added Todd Frazier, who's one of the best bargains of the offseason. They brought back Jay Bruce. Like you said, they even signed Adrian Gonzalez, who's somehow hitting again. So nothing they did was particularly flashy, but all those guys... Vargas accepted because he's hurt, have played pretty well so far. Besides Ahmed Rosario at shortstop, they have an above average hitter at every position, which matters. One of the things we talk a lot about is that bare competency at every single position is almost just as important as having one or two stars. And even if you don't think that like Adrian Gonzalez's success will last, which I don't, they can yeah, move. I don't think anybody does. Yeah, they can at that point maybe move Jay Bruce to first base and play some combination of Conforto and Cespedes and Nimmo in the outfield. So Conforto being back earlier than expected from his injury is huge. He might be their best hitter. But even beyond him, I think we'll still spend all season waiting for that injury to happen because. Yes, 8-1 and one is a great start, but I'm not sure how much we've learned about the Mets in the first week mm-hmm. because I don't think anyone expected, oh, if Syndergaard and DeGrom are healthy, they're going to be a bad team. No, we thought Syndergaard and DeGrom gave the Mets a chance to make the playoffs. The question is what happens when one of their five best pitchers gets hurt. Right, and that's the... And Syndergaard and DeGrom, you know, as much as I joke about Syndergaard getting hurt, he's... You know, he's no more injury prone than any other pitcher. The guys I worry about are Harvey, Mats, and and Wheeler. Exactly. And you know, Harvey, yeah, Harvey in particular has is an object of fascination. And his, you know, his fastball velocity isn't all the way back up. He's managing to get by this year, but you know, I don't. Has has your outlook on him changed at all since the beginning of the season? I think I'm a little encouraged by his start, but then again, it's only two games in and I'm not super optimistic about his velocity numbers. 
he could be fine, but I definitely agree that the real worry is the back end of the rotation. Because, yeah, if they lose Syndergaard, then they'll be in a bad shape, but that's true of every team with their ace. And right. especially if the Indians lose Corey Kluber, they'll be in bad shape. Like, exactly. That's, it's true of much better teams than the Mets. But the thing with the Mets is that there's such a trickle-down effect if, like, Mats and Harvey get hurt. Because right now, one of the reasons they've been so successful is their bullpen. It has the highest win probability added of any bullpen in baseball. And Familia and Ramos form a good back end. But what's been so great for them thus far is Robert Gisellman and Seth Lugo. Their stuff has really played up in relief. It feels... Vaguely, like they're copying the Astros, who have Brad Peacock and Colin McHugh and Chris Stavinsky in the bullpen. Giselman and Lugo were fine in the rotation, but both of them had career strikeout rates below 20% this year, uh, before this year. They're both 30% or better in the bullpen this season. So they've been really good in short stints, but if Harvey and Mats or Wheeler get hurt, and then you have to move those guys to the rotation, it's not just getting worse in the rotation. It removes the advantage from the bullpen too, and takes this pitching staff, which is such a strength. They lead the National League in ERA right now. They're only behind the Astros in the full majors. And it takes that pitching staff, which is such a strength, and makes it fine. They have Syndergaard and DeGrom, so any pitching staff that has those two at the top won't be bad. But if anyone gets hurt, it's no longer such an advantage. Let's go back to Conforto for a second, because he's a guy who struggled to break in under Terry Collins. He's sort of I've I've been a big Michael Conforto fan since his days at uh, Oregon State. He's just one of those guys who like the people make fun of the term professional hitter um, because it's so nebulous. And obviously, like everybody from from Rosario to Kevin Ploiecki to Yoana Cespedes is literally a professional hitter. But he's just one of those players who isn't like isn't flashy powerful isn't Joey Votto level uh you know level of plate discipline but he's just all the time constantly hitting the ball hard constantly on base and i think they i mean they really got a that that just sort of that reliable competence is so difficult to to get in the draft particularly as late as they, you know at the back end of the top 10 um and when he's healthy, I think, you know, you said he's, he might be their best hitter. I don't think that's particularly controversial. I think he is. I think he's past Cespedes as, a, um, as an all-around offensive player at this point. Yeah, I think it's easy to forget how just good he was last year because he suffered the fluke injury and there was the question of, well, maybe he won't be back until Memorial Day and, you know, will he play center field again when he's probably suited better for a corner outfield spot? But he was really, really solid as a hitter last year. He had a 145 OPS plus. He hit 27 homers without even qualifying for the batting title, which doesn't sound you know amazing in the juice ball era, but that's still a lot of home runs. It's 35, yeah. 40 home runs over a full season. Relatively late last spring, like late May, early June, um, I did a would you rather have Judge or Cespit or, uh, or Conforto column, and I picked Conforto. Because I was just that high on the, I, you know, having seen a full season to judge, I'd probably reverse my decision now. But it just the it's he it feels just so reliable and having, you know, he could just be their number three hitter for as long as they they're willing to pay him as he reaches free agency. Yeah, I think once again, the Mets sort of have a, too many outfielders for too few spots. Signing Jay right. Bruce, uh, he's a fine hitter and he'll hit home runs. He has played well in New York before, but I actually am curious to see how Mickey Calloway, the new manager, is going to manage that outfield rotation for the rest of the season. Brandon Nimmo, I think, is a really good hitter. He he just gets on base all the time. He has a career on base percentage well above 350. And with him and Conforto and Cespedes, that's a really solid hitting outfield core. And mm-hmm. That that's why you know, Adrian Gonzalez has sort of thrown a wrench in the plans because he's actually hitting well. But by the All Star break, Jay Bruce should probably be playing first base every day. Yeah. So let's sort of look ahead to to that All Star breakish re- region and maybe a little bit beyond because you know the like you're saying what we thought about this team going into the season is not. It's not necessarily that different now. I think you know Conforter coming back, like you said, but there's still another injury to Conforto. There are another injury to Syndergaard. There are a couple injuries to the back end of the rotation. There are Adrian Gonzalez or as Drupal Cabrera, who's been outstanding. One of those guys falls, falls off. Um, and they're, you know, sort of right back to playing 500 ish baseball. But the difference is 
now they've got a seven game head start on 500 and they've got, uh, I believe, a three and a half game lead on the Nationals uh, heading into Tuesday's uh, game. So to me, the importance of the start is not necessarily that it makes me think differently about the team. It makes it makes the makes the bar lower for the rest of the season. So if they go 500 from now until the end of the year, they're going to be in the wild card race until the very end. So uh, that certainly seems like it's within the realm of possibility. Yeah, we talk a lot about this concept of banking wins that even if you don't change the outlook for a team, it just matters that they're eight and one already. The same thing is happening in the American League East with the Yankees and Red Sox, where maybe you entered the season thinking the Yankees are about four games better than Boston. That seemed like a reasonable projection, but now Boston has already made up that projected four-game deficit. So the Mets, maybe the projection said they were about, I don't know, eight games worse than the Nationals. They've already made up half of that, and at both Fangraphs and Baseball Prospectus, no team has boosted its playoff odds by more since the last week or the last start of the season than the Mets. It just matters that not only are they making up ground on the Nationals, but they're making up ground on the Cardinals and the Rockies and potential wildcard contenders, even if the Nationals end up catching them. So one last thing before we close up, we sort of mentioned Ahmed Rosario. It's It feels weird that a global top 10 prospect at shortstop is sort of flying under the radar in New York. Um, is this just like the level of play at shortstop between Seeger and Lindor and Correa and Xander Bogarts. And there've just been so many shortstop prospects who've come up and, and made a huge impact offensively already that Rosario's sort of normal. You know, I wouldn't even say normal. He's, you know, he's about a league average hitter right now uh, through eight games and he's a good defender and, you know, he's coming along at age, you know, in his age 22 season is, is that just a state of the fact that he's not being talked about the way that Correa and Lindor were when they came up? Is that just uh, you know, a reflection on the state of shortstop in baseball or is he still have another gear to go to? I think that's part of it. I also think even his current league average production is kind of fluky. It'd help if he started hitting the ball hard and didn't strike out 40% of the time. But I, I just think he's a guy like Dansby Swanson is also in the same boat where he had a lot of hype in the minors and then really struggled in his first major league exposure. He had 170 plate appearances last year. It's not like he just had a quick September cup of coffee where he couldn't hit. He struggled for a couple months. So I think at this point, yeah, he has a level he can go to, but he also sort of has to prove that he can make an adjustment because pitchers have been pitching him the same way for a while with a lot of success. He needs to counteract that, Dansby Swanson's the same way. Even like Tim Anderson for the White Sox is not quite as highly touted, but he's finally starting to show some flashes this year after a year and a half of struggles. So mm-hmm. you know, guys like Correa and Seager were so good right off the bat. It's almost like when like Andrew Luck and Robert Griffin III were so good at quarterback right away. Every quarterback after them who showed growing pains already seemed like a bust. I'm not saying Ahmed Rosario is a bust, but the onus is on him at this point to start playing well and get that attention back as opposed to, oh, well, let's give him this attention already because he hasn't you know, earned it yet at the major league level. Yeah. Weirdly, I think his physique is because he's like he's still skinny and he's, you know, most 22 year olds are skinny. Um, but like I think Carlos Correa sort of um, sort of broke the curve by debuting in his age 20 season looking like Demarcus Ware. Like, you know, Rosario still can still uh, put on a little bit of weight, probably add a little bit of power, and and that'll help him improve at the plate a little bit as as time goes on. So let's just end with this. Let's boil it down to to the essence of the, of the question. Have the Mets banked enough wins that that you are willing to consider? Well, I guess, yeah, you have to consider them for a wild card spot, but they ha- have they banked enough wins to get out in the front of that conversation? Well, I, in the preseason, picked the Phillies and Cardinals as my wildcard teams, and both of them are below 500 now. So the Mets have certainly made a case over those two teams. I think by comparison, I would probably take the Mets over the Phillies right now, which maybe is a silly thing to say after just a week and a half of games. But those four or five wins they've banked are going to prove 
you know, a pretty big difference in August and September. So I think the Mets are probably one of the wildcard favorites at this point. I looked back at our preseason predictions this morning. Only one person on our staff picked the Mets to make the playoffs. At other sites like Fangraphs, only four out of 40 people picked the Mets to make the playoffs. So at the very least, that they're at the front of this conversation now shows how good their first week and a half has been. All right. Well, thank you for... I know we've overlooked the Mets a little bit in the preseason. We never overlook Zach Cram. He'll be back next week uh, with more truth, more Zachs. Thanks for coming on, Zach. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks, Zach. We'll be back with Ben Lindbergh and Bill Simmons after this. Hey, this is JJ Redick. You may know me as a basketball player. You may have seen me play during my college career at Duke University or perhaps over the past decade playing in the NBA for the Magic, the Bucks, the Clippers, or the Sixers. Well, today I'm here to tell you about my show, the JJ Redick Podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network. This is where you can find me interviewing athletes as well as in-depth conversations with celebrities. So make sure to subscribe to the JJ Redick Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. So it's the ninth inning, and that means it's time for the closer. Ben Lindbergh, a man. I, you know, we talked about getting you entrance music last week. I think we need theme music for Shohei Otani, which is just we're we're doing. We've this is like three weeks in a row we've done a dedicated Shohei Otani segment. So I can't write it because I tried to come up with something in my head, and it just came out like, uh, "What did Jerry Depoto do?" So that just might be <laughs> the only thing in my repertoire now, but. Let me just put it this way. I'm just rambling. You're going to talk eventually. Um, I am. Yeah. Last week, uh, Zach and I talked about Otani and his first start and his first game. And I said uh, that I wanted to see him hit the ball in the air more. And there's this the scene in Star Trek First Contact where uh, the <laughs> Borg adapt to the, to, uh, the Federation's phaser frequencies and Worf gives this panicked yell. They've adapted. Like, that's the exact sound I made when Otani took uh, Corey Kluber deep. And then you wrote about him this weekend. And I just want to say like, you know, you're, I, you're usually a very straightforward, you know, very, uh, you know, analytical is, is probably an overused term, but you're, you're a calculating analyst, I would say. And there sure. was this level of awe and love in your writing that, you know, <laughs> yes. we don't usually see from you. So, Go nuts. <laughs> I'm surprised it took this long for you to make a Star Trek reference in one of our segments together. But yes, when I think back to this time last year when you and I were having Christian Bethencourt on the podcast, because that was the closest we could come to a true two-way player, I pity the podcasters we once were because now we have the genuine article. No disrespect to Christian who tried his best, but there's only one Shohei Otani and it really has been awe-inspiring to watch him. And it's been awesome in the original old school sense of the word. And I mean, we've been salivating over his stat lines for years now. We've been looking forward to what he might be and what he might get a chance to do. And he's overcome many obstacles such as the CBA preventing him from making any money and various you know injuries that have arisen and of course there was always the fear that he just wouldn't get a legitimate chance but he has and he's totally made the most of it within the first couple weeks of the season here I wouldn't say he's answered every question he's maybe created some new questions but it's a small sample and yet he's demonstrated within that sample that he has the talent to match almost any player in baseball in almost every facet of the game I don't see how you could be anything but completely thrilled by what's happening here yeah and even as even as this is happening i'm still i was wondering why i was sort of pessimistic about him coming into the season i think there's two reasons one his japanese numbers from his two-way season in 2016 were just so cartoonish i couldn't believe that that he put up (laughs) anything like that and the second thing i think might i didn't think about this until you brought it up but it might be christian betancourt that (laughs) similar experiments have failed that this is just it's just so unusual for there to be a a guy who can be a legit impact player both ways. And so because of that, while I am in awe of his first couple of weeks and particularly his performance against Oakland on Sunday, um, yeah. I'm still trying to maintain like we've seen good weeks before, like trying not to get too carried away. And then he does things. The performance has not been like, you know, Jake Junis almost had, took a no hitter into the the seventh inning uh, the other night. Um, right. The it's not the perfect game. It's stuff like a hundred miles an hour on the black. 
like that you don't see very often. And it, it almost feels like he's been undersold just in terms of stuff as a pitcher. Yeah, I mean, right. He throws almost as hard as any other starting pitcher in the game. He has this devastating splitter that thus far no one has really been able to lay off of. He's got like a 70% whiff rate, whiffs per swing rate on that pitch, which no other pitch in baseball can compare to to this point. And I've seen some suggestions that, you know, the league will adjust. And of course it will to a certain extent. It probably will, yeah. Yeah, sure. But it's not as simple as saying, oh, well, the splitter usually ends up outside the strike zone. So all they have to do is just sit there and take the pitch. Well, okay, but that's easy to say. It's harder to do when you're in the batter's box and it looks like the fastball until it's so close that you don't even have time to react to it. So I think, you know, the the curveball has been kind of a show me pitch thus far. The slider, he hasn't really located all that well. If he gets either or both of those pitches going, then I don't know what he's going to look like because even as essentially a two-pitch pitcher to this point, he has been almost you know dominant and fun to watch and just a highlight factory. And the A's saw him twice in a week and didn't appear to be able to make any kind of adjustment to him the second time around, and that's not a bad lineup. So I... Just, you know, we, I think, had a lot of confidence in him as a pitcher. Most of the uncertainty was surrounding his offensive performance, and he hasn't completely dispelled that uncertainty yet. But based on all the samples that do mean, or all the stats that do mean something in small samples, whether it's pitch speed, pitch movement, batted ball speed, sprint speed, he's almost as fast as the fastest players in the game on top of everything else. He's already shown that he has the raw talent. So, Coupled with the fact that we know that he has already been the best hitter and best pitcher in Japan over the course of multiple seasons in a league that is higher than any domestic minor league here, I just don't have a whole lot of uncertainty anymore about him being able to do this if he continues to get the chance. And he will on this team if he continues to perform anything close to what he has so far. Yeah, Ed. The really interesting thing about this is like there's been nothing but exciting rookies over the in Major League Baseball over the past yeah. five years or so. But he seems to be capturing the public imagination in a way that and I don't in a way that that Aaron Judge for all the hype around him, it wasn't to this level. I don't know if even like young Trout was to to this level. And I think part of it is there's a sort of weird Orientalist fascination with this guy coming in, you know, the Sid Finch character coming in from from Japan. But it, like a lot of it is he is actually unique. Can you think about yeah. can you think of the last guy who had like, you know, a, who inspired the public imagination like this? In baseball, I don't know that it's happened because, as you say, I mean, we've been blessed with an extraordinary collection of young talent. We've got Trout and Harper being, at times, the best players in their respective leagues in a way that maybe we haven't seen since, I don't know, Mantle and Mays. It's been fun to watch. And then you have all the other, the whole crop of young shortstops and Cindergard, and you can go on and on. All those guys are great and in many cases, very compelling personalities. And with some of them, you can point to Trout, of course, and say no one has ever gotten off to this great a start to a career. And that does make them compelling, but no one is doing what Otani is doing. They're just being good at baseball. They're being better at baseball in mostly conventional ways. With Trout, we were so impressed because he was, you know, maybe the best hitter in baseball and also a really good fielder and also a great runner. And Otani is, I think, taking that to an even greater extreme where he's a great pitcher and yet also evidently a great hitter and a great runner. We haven't seen that. We've seen Betancourt, we've seen Drew Butera and Chris Jimenez be kind of backup catchers slash mop-up men. That's as close as we've gotten. Or you can go back to Brooks Kieschnick or Chris Owings and these guys who kind of made token approaches at being two-way players. But they never really had a, a secondary role that was anywhere close to their primary role. And so I'll be really curious to see what the crossover potential for Otani is, because yeah. just anecdotally, I mean, I'm already getting texts from friends and inquiries from family, you know, people who don't really care about baseball other than to humor me have been texting me like, is Otani starting tonight? How can I watch Otani? What did Otani do today? And I can only hope that that will continue to catch on if his performance keeps up. 
And I think that's like there was sort of a baseball hipster interest in Micah Owings when he was doing that that yeah. two way brief two way experiment. But this is like, you know, basketball level uh, interest in, <laughs> in what Otani's doing. Um, mm-hmm. Let's. I guess, try to be realistic for a second. And I want to talk about two uh, questions that came up in Slack over the over the past day or so. One is uh, the question of Otani versus Mike Trout. You know, what what would it take for Otani to outperform Mike Trout in terms of overall war this year? And what is the likelihood of that? I think extremely low. I feel almost disloyal getting Even, so yeah, excited absolutely. about Otani. I, I, like Trout's been my guy for years and I've tried to be an evangelist for him to a certain extent. And now I'm tuning into Angels games and Trout is kind of just the, the guy in the background as I'm fixating on Otani. But yeah, I think that, you know, there's been talk about is Otani better than Trout? Is Otani a potential MVP? I'm not going to say there will never come a point in his career where he couldn't be a contender for that award, but I just don't know whether his rookie year will be that one because he's being treated with kid gloves for now. The Angels are handling him carefully. They had this pre-scheduled rest schedule set up for him entering the season, and they've stuck to it so far. And I think it's prudent. He's trying to do something that we haven't seen a player do in this league, in this country. So I think it makes sense. Yeah, start him once a week. You know, Give him a buffer on either end of the start. Give him a, a complete rest day. It's going to be hard to resist the temptation to keep playing him more if he keeps this up and if the Angels are in the heart of the AL West race and the wildcard race. But I just don't think he can get the playing time he would need to compete with Trout or whoever else is leading the league. He's just not going to get enough innings, enough plate appearances in the future when they kind of take the leash off and let him go. Then maybe because we've seen in 2016 when he was in Japan, there is a version of wins above replacement player for Japan, and he was worth 10 and a half wins in that league, which is a 143 game schedule league. So that gives you some idea of what his potential could be in theory. But I just don't think this is the year when he's going to mount that sort of assault. Yeah, and that that sort of backs up to the second question is what would his MVP season look like? And you know, I and I guess we'll we'll end on this. I think the the important thing is is playing time. And you know, Zach said this uh, yesterday, but like getting to a six win season as a pitcher requires uncommon durability nowadays. And then mm-hmm. on top of that, in order to get to the eight nine win uh, level as a hitter that it would take for him to catch Trout overall, it would require like. There were only two two-win full-time DHs last year, Edwin Encarnacion and Nelson Cruz, both of whom batted 600 times. And if Otani's getting 250, 300 plate appearances, then that's he's just not going to get the, the playing time, like you said. And if he gets more, I think a lot of people sort of underplay the physical toll that playing baseball takes on you, even DHing, because yeah. it's just such a grind day after day after day. And he's still young. He's still not, you know, he's still kind of skinny. Like, I, mm-hmm. I would like to see how he, the next question for him you know not like he could have done anything to to answer this already but the next challenge for him is can he keep it up over a full season over 30 starts mm-hmm. over 300 or more plate appearances and let's see how his body reacts to that and i think that's you know if he sort of goes into that down ballot mvp range from best player in baseball which is what he looks like right now i think that fatigue you know fatigue he'll have a bad start here and there he'll slump you know i think that's what's going to um you know, we'll we'll see we'll see what happens when he starts to have to deal with that. Yeah, we have seen him make some slight adjustments already uh, in a performance sense. He, you know, has been pitched inside more than any other player in baseball so far because that was the scouting report on him coming into the season. Hasn't really worked, obviously, and he has already adjusted his stance. So in spring training, he had this big leg kick and that didn't work so well for him. Now he's gone to more of a, a toe tap and that has seemed to work well. So I think he has the capacity to make that kind of adjustment. We just don't know about the physical side. But again, this is not new for him. It's new for all of us to be watching it on a day-to-day basis, but he's been doing this for several years now. In fact, he even used to play outfield on top of everything else. So he has experience. He knows how to manage his body. And yes, it's a, a different schedule in the U.S., but not so dramatically different that there aren't analogs here. 
As for what an Otani MVP campaign would look like, I think it's kind of a fascinating question. Like, obviously, if he is the best in baseball at either one of these things and then is also good at the other, that would get him there. I don't know that he necessarily needs that, though. Like, I think there would be some bonus points applied for just being good at both things. Like, in the way that John Smoltz sailed right into the Hall of Fame because he was a good starter and closer, even though those aren't actually really two different things. One is just an easier version of the other. He just sailed right in, whereas someone like Mike Messina, for instance, is still waiting. So I could see Otani, if he's just, you know, very good, above average at both things, Maybe it just kind of adds up and, you know, he'd be a sensation at that point, too. So maybe he'd just sort of sail in on this wave of just public excitement. So I could see that happening. It's tough, though, because even in Japan, when he was like a 10-win player, he was like a six-win pitcher and a four-win hitter. So it's probably always going to be somewhat slanted that way, especially as long as he's in this league and is not hitting in place of the pitcher or playing outfield, but is hitting in place of DHs, who just generally tend to be pretty good at the whole hitting thing. All right, Simmons here, I want to jump in. Oh, yeah. Oh, sure. Hey. All right. So if Otani goes 16 and 6 with like 170 <laughs> innings pitched and 210 strikeouts and then he bats in 85 games and hits 25 homers and has like 300, 400, 500 splits and they win the AL West. I think that wins him the MVP. Am I crazy? I don't no, think that's uh, yeah, crazy. I think that I th- would do it. I think if he gets close to Trout in overall value, then there's going to be a huge narrative push for him. Is what mm-hmm. did you say? How many plate appearances did you say with the three or four hundred, five hundred? Yeah, I'm saying games. like yeah, uh, yeah, eighty five games. games. Basically, like uh, almost like the Roy Hobbs New York Knights season where he came in like in June. Whatever his stats were, a little less than that. But yeah, if he if he plays 85 games as the DH and he hits 24 homers and he has, I don't know, 70, 75 RBI and, and he has the 300, 400, 500 splits combined with being like the seventh best pitcher in the league, I think that gets him. I, I think that would, I think the narrative would push and it would be like the most compelling MVP story we've had in a while. Cause it really like, yeah, I, the MVP hasn't been fun to argue about because we can just do it with simple math. This would be the first Mm -hmm. time that we would have to use resources other than just math to figure out the MVP. (laughs) Yeah, there's still math, but the math is kind of complicated for Otani compared to everyone else. You can't even figure it out. I mean, you could use war, but you you would actually have to really value, all right, this is like nothing we've ever seen before. We can't compare it to anything. Right. I I guess like the season you're talking about is sort of Steven Strasburg last year plus, I don't know, half a year of I'm going to see what like Anthony Rizzo put up last year um, he might have been a little bit better than that but I I think the the big challenge is right now I don't know if he's going to get 85 games yeah. and in the field and like the you know it I think there is a an actual valid question to be asked of whether you whether the fact that he's playing both ways overrides that sort of total value proposition. Because if you think about him as two components of DH plus pitcher, I don't know if that gets you, like Trout is so good, I don't know if that gets you over the hump. But if you, you know, I I think there's a there's a case to be made that this all coming from one guy deserves some sort of narrative bonus. And I think regardless of, of whether or not like you can make an actual value proposition out of that, I think he's just going to be too good a story that he could get an actual jump the way, you know, I don't like, R.A. Dickey Cy Young season, I think, might have been right. the last time there was a like a huge overriding narrative thing, uh, not you know non statistical narrative thing that that pushed a guy over the over the top. I'm probably forgetting something, but I could see something like that happen. Well, this is what I yeah, grew up be- with, right? Like this was like in '86, whether Clemens was the MVP or not, and before we had all the all the math that we have now and all the information we have now, and just better ways to assess performance. It basically came down to gut feeling who was owning the media narrative, who who kind of was the galvanizing guy. And we just thought about all these things that didn't have to do with straight out performance, which in baseball you can really measure to the nth degree. And in this case, like you could make a case if the Angels win 95, 96 games, which I don't think they will, but let's play it out and say that they're just the surprise of the year. Part of the reason that I think they would be surprising and be a playoff contender 
is because of the energy that he's brought to that place, which had the best player in baseball the last four years and was a shitty place to watch a game. It was not not fun right. to go to Angels games. And what I saw on Sunday was like, wow, this is now a thing. This <laughs> is becoming yeah. a phenomenon, which I don't know if you can measure that with stats. Yeah, and I and wonder whether, uh, sorry, Michael, I wonder whether at some point there becomes a, a public pressure almost on the Angels where if Otani becomes bigger than this team and bigger than baseball, if he keeps this up and becomes a, a sort of nationwide sensation, then it becomes a little tougher, I think, to exercise restraint when you're talking about, well, we better give him this day off to just relax after his start when you know you're getting a, a ticket bonus, fans are coming out to see him hit. Not every team has a complete separation between the business side and the baseball operations side. So I wonder whether eventually you get some suggestion, hey, we're we're doing a lot better. We're selling a lot more hot dogs here when Otani is in the lineup than when he's not. And so I well, wonder whether second, the Angels will be able to resist the temptation. A, that's a huge point. And I, I think that's something people haven't factored in yet. People are going to go to the ballpark to see him. Like I wanted to, my son wants sure. to go to see him. He was saying this weekend and you think like Sunday of the Masters, which is usually a day that Sunday with Masters and WrestleMania, that's usually a day where baseball is completely irrelevant. And Otani was pitching a perfect game and it became a thing. And I just feel like now people are going to want to know, they're going to be like, is he pitching? Or is he going to play? Is he going to DH? And it's going to decide yeah. whether they want to buy tickets or not. And if it's a day after he pitches, it, the team, I think, is going to have to make it clear, like, he is not playing the day after he pitches. But he might yeah. pinch hit. It, but then two days right. after he pitches, he's definitely playing. And there's too much money at stake. They're going to sell an extra 15,000 tickets every time he plays. I think there there usually is a, a firewall between... Um, between sort of baseball ops and and the the business side, and I think there there's going to be an understanding that you don't want to burn this guy out. Yeah, because the Angels are looking at the next six years, like they'll draw better if Otani's good in 2022. You know, so yeah, I. I think there will be some pressure. And I think if he performs and if he proves he can hack it, he's going to move his way. You know, he's going to move into the lineup more often, no matter what. Um, well, wait a second. Let me you ask know, you I, this, though. If it's sorry, it's, it's September 10th. He pitched the night before he's pitched 100. He pitched 110 pitches and went into the eighth inning. And, you know, they just like we're not using him today. But now it's they're down five four in the ninth inning. Right. And there's two guys on. Then he comes in to pinch hit. How, absolutely. How does he not, yeah, absolutely how does he not pinch hit? Like, compared to yeah. the other options, they would have to have him pinch hit. So I, I think it's crazy for anyone to say they're gonna not play him that they're absolutely gonna use him as a pinch hitter at the least. I think yeah. that's I think that's gonna happen more often as the as the season goes on. I think part of the concern now is not wearing him down so early so that you can still call on him to to be at his best in September and and probably October. But going back to the MVP thing, like I think in general it's a good thing. It's it's that it's so numerically based now because it's it just means everybody's on the same page and there's a lot a lot less like coming up with an answer and then going back and filling in the work that it would take to to get there. But I think that it would be interesting to have some sort of strictly narrative based player of the year award. Cause yeah. a lot of times, particularly, particularly in baseball, like trout is just the best player almost every season. And that's not interesting, but it is interesting to go back and say like, you know, who is the the guy that everybody's talking about? I think last year in the AL, it probably would have been Altuve and, and judge anyway, no matter what, but yeah. you know, that would give room for, you know, this is the the guy that historically everybody's going to remember for this season. Well, Trout's going to be victim to Michael Jordan syndrome at some point because I think he already is. Yeah, Jordan yeah. won. <laughs> Jordan won. I think six MV, five or six MVPs, and just got robbed a couple of years. Like really, Barkley won in '93, never should have won. MJ should have been the MVP every year he was at his peak, and then in '90, 90, '97, Carl Malone beat him, and it was ridiculous as it was happening. And Trout. At some point, Trout is going to have one of those where people just get bored of voting for him and they're looking for any other guy. And He's I, I already think, lost I think two. Yeah, the I, guy. Think had. I think that's already happened to yeah. him twice. Yeah. 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 I, th I think you could make the case for Donaldson <laughs> over him when Donaldson won. But yeah, the, both years that he, he lost, to, at least one of the years that he lost to Cabrera. How many does he have like, now? Maybe the triple crown year. How many He's got does... two, right? Oh, yeah, you're right. It has happened to him. <laughs> yeah, I bought I, I yeah, blocked the Donaldson MVP out of my brain. I just <laughs> forgot about that. That was terrible. It, 
And it happened to Pujols like three or four times when he was in St. Louis. So, I mean, that that sort of thing, I almost like there's no way that like it took actually Barry Bonds for a baseball player to get to six MVP awards. Yeah. And even so, he probably should have had way, more than he did. Yeah. Well, there's something to what Bauman was saying about owning the narrative that is kind of its own unofficial award. You know, like Pedro in 99, that's just that year belongs to him. And Bonds in 2001, that year belongs to him. And it just goes on down the line. And not necessarily always does the guy actually win the right. MVP or all mm-hmm. that stuff. That would be interesting to go back and be like, who kind of owned each year? Because I, I do think um, almost every year somebody jumps out. I'm really curious to see Otani's endorsement potential. What what companies do you think are pitching Otani right now on being their spokesman? Some, oh my God. Some like, I don't know double mint gum kind of scenario where he's doing two things at once. He's, he just seems like the perfect Twix, fit. Obviously. Right? Twix feels like yeah, the sure. obvious. <laughs> well, there, did you there's guys, a language barrier, but he's a pretty personable guy. Did you guys expect him to be this charismatic? I, I just assumed, you know, usually, especially when the Japanese guys come over, they, they have, they have a certain something about them, but I never expected it would be this much fun to actually watch him pitch. And it, just the way mm-hmm. he was reacting to some of the strikeouts, I was like, this is great. Okay, like, yeah, our, I think our pitchers don't do this. I didn't know what to make of him just because, you know, everything I had heard about him as, as a person, like it would, it was almost like a trout like personality, like sort of a, a, a weird hick, you know, baseball nut kind of, yeah. kind of guy. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a, a history of Japanese pitcher. Like Darvish was the most fun pitcher in baseball the moment he came over. And you think yeah. back to Hideo Nomo. So there's, you know, there's some precedent for that. But I, I do like that he sort of like got this Chris Archer thing going or going on. Like the big fist pump as he came off the mound in the seventh on Sunday was great. Nomo, mm-hmm. Nomo was not yeah. fun to watch because he was on the Red Sox one year and he, he was not. Yeah, he's not somebody that you kept got him after. You didn't get peak Nomo, Nomo though. <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah. <laughs> true, I did. Yeah, I think it, it's so rare. You know, listen, Trout's amazing, and he's been the best player of the decade. But when you go to see him in person, he's not somebody that jumps off the field. He's athletically, he's incredible. But I just, I judge a lot of this kind of like eye test stuff by just how my son reacts. And Trout's amazing, but. He, the stuff that he does, it's almost like you have to be a real baseball fan to appreciate some of it. Like athletically, he's great, all that stuff. But like, I remember seeing Bonds play left field when he was in his prime at Candlestick. And that like jumped out to me in, in like a really, really different kind of way. It was like, wow, I've never seen anything like this. And I think Pedro is like this. And I'm sure I haven't seen Aaron Judge in person yet, but I'm sure just watching this giant dude go up and try to hit Homer, Stanton, same thing. Um, Otani seems like he's in that kind of class of you're not going mm-hmm. to the bathroom when he's pitching. You're not going to the mm-hmm. bathroom during an inning that he's up. And when he's on the field, you're just staring at him. And there's not a lot of guys <laughs> in baseball like that right now. I think Altuve is like that. Yeah. Trout yeah. is better at the things that everyone else is already doing. And Otani is doing something that no one else is doing. And Trout does it in a, a not particularly flashy way you you almost yeah, have to I look think, at the stat line to say yeah this is why he's good but he doesn't really jump off the screen at you the same way i think trout the thing that jumps off the screen there are two things with trout that, that jump off the screen at me one is is sort of like an inside baseball thing like you the way he tracks a pitch is like it's him and vado and there's nobody else who does that but it's hard to see that from from the stands but the other thing is like he's got i wrote about ben simmons having this unusual combination of size and speed yeah. and that's the other thing that like i think it was mm-hmm. sam miller who said how is something this big moving this fast and that's yeah. the what what jumps out of trap but unless you got that double to the gap then you're not necessarily going to get that every time so we saw that with that when i took my son to the red sox game last year last summer trout hit a double and the way he turned first base and got to second was just different and that was the Mm-hmm. You know, and he has different moments like that during a baseball game. But this is the one time in person where I was with my son and our friend Daniel and his son and all of us were kind of like, whoa, that felt different. And, you know, but the, the, the thing that makes him great is he's just so technically perfect at everything he does that it's almost hard to right. appreciate when you're sitting in the 11th row. Whereas mm-hmm. Otani's striking out somebody and then doing a crazy fist pump. Like you can see that <laughs> in the right field upper deck, you know, and I, I think... 
I, I was really dubious, especially when the spring training stuff started, you know, I'm in that crazy league. I remember. Yeah. League of dorks with, we, it's American League only, Mallory's in the league. And there was a moment there where we thought he was going to the minors. And we had the first pick and there's this guy, uh, Eloy Jimenez on the White Sox that we wanted to take. And it was like, if Otani goes to the minors, do we take him? Like, it, it just seemed like all of a sudden he had bust potential for a week. And now it seems completely insane. It seems like the dumbest thing that anybody ever could have thought. You didn't take Eloy Jimenez, did you? I, 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 I did. Is that bad? Oh, no. You're kidding. <laughs> what the hell? What's wrong with him? Because, uh, well, I mean, if you're worried us. about Otani right going here. to the minors, like Eloy Jimenez is going to be in the minors for oh, no. a while. No, like, that's, a, that's, that's the whole point. You take the guy in the minors. We're stashing him. He's right. coming up three years from now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what, uh-huh. okay. this is what led to my seven-year odyssey with Byron Buxton, where we had him, <laughs> we drafted him when he was like 18, we we carried him out, we held his hand all the way through the minors, and then he just shit the bed over and over again, and we traded It's going to happen, I'm telling you. We traded him in July. The year. No, we traded him in July, and his career immediately took oh, off. That was and the worst I'm, time. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's like bittersweet, I'm happy for him, but at the same time, like I just have the Buxton scars. But that's what happens with young guys, you just never know. I'm a little worried about your team from the the two things I know about it. <laughs> what, what, we had the first pick in the draft. We took the best guy. We, we, this is put it this way: it's a rebuilding season. We have some guys. Yeah. Put it this way: Ichiro <laughs> started for us this week. How about that? <laughs> That's when you know you're That's rebuilding rough. when Ichiro is in your in your lineup with Rob Refschneider, whatever that guy's name is, and a bunch of the usual. <laughs> I mean, it's not good. I'm not proud of it, guys. Trust the process, Bill. I'm gonna try. That's when we're doing a full hinky. <laughs> pretty exciting. Um, do you want to you want to talk Red Sox quick? Yeah. All right. Here's my take with the Red Sox, which was a lot more ebullient before Bogarts got hurt, and Bogarts got hurt in like the stupidest way possible. And I watched the GIF. I I didn't see it live because I was watching the Masters, but immediately started getting texts. And it's one of the dumbest injuries in the history of the Red Sox. Hopefully, he's not hurt long term. But um, bad throw. He catches it wrong. He somehow flips it toward the dugout and then runs toward the dugout to chase it and does this crazy slide and just drags his ankle. And uh, and the thing that sucked was he was hitting the living shit out of the ball. And we, I had him not only in the Red Sox, but on, on my League of Dorks team last year. And you could tell he was like badly hurt the second half of the year. Like he, he had a screwed up wrist and he couldn't turn on the ball, and he was a disaster. And you knew he was hurt, and he was playing through it, and everybody was keeping quiet about it. But this year, it seemed like he was headed for, like, you know, like an an old-school kind of Cal Ripken, um, you know, Machado type of monster, monster shortstop season, combined with J.D. Martinez, who hasn't started hitting yet, but at least we know he's going to do it. And all of a sudden, this team... Three starters, uh, probably the best closer in the American League. A lot of like lively bullpen arms. And then this offense that was pretty good last year that now is adding rejuvenated Bogarts and um, and JD and then, you know, a full year of Benintende and things like that. It really seemed like I, I started to get ideas. I, I, don't, I know they played shitty teams. I know the Yankees series is going to be a big test this week. But I do think this is a much better team and it's a very balanced team. And uh, and I think I, they're going to be pretty good. Yeah, I so I just wanted to bring. I was on MLB.com, sort of catching up on on some of the big uh, uh, big plays from the past couple of days uh, with the Red Sox, and they've got like this two and a half minute video of their comeback against the Rays the other day. Yeah, that it has like explosions in the sky style music and and you know the the announcer sort of faintly in the in the background and like it looks like a world series video for a game against tampa in the in the second week of the season yep. so i think there's i mean like let's i know they're eight and one and they're a good team and i think you know they're gonna win 90 odd games to make the playoffs but like that's that feels like a bit much but yeah i think the the offense adding martinez is is one thing like the thing thing about last year is like they had eight good hitters in that lineup, but all of them just had bad years. That that yeah. offense was dog shit last year. Yeah, and I just think getting guys like you, you know Bogarts is, is probably example number one, but just getting those guys back to where you'd expect would would be a big boost over last year. The frustrating yeah. thing about last year was the the guys were all having off years, but the innings 
you know, just watching it day in and day out and like, you know, just getting it. I was, my son started watching last year. So I watched even more Red Sox than usual, but it was a lot of like bases loaded, two outs, somebody striking out, guy guy on second and first, one out, double play. It was a lot of like shoot yourself in the foot innings. And mm -hmm. baseball is really strange because you kind of know early on what kind of team you have. And like, that's why this, this team, the comeback wins and stuff, there's like a mojo with this team that last year's team never had. And, the, and it had it for all of a sudden, like there was about three weeks when Nunez got really hot and Devers came up and all of a sudden they started hitting the ball. And there was about three weeks there where it was, you're going, oh, wow, maybe something's happening. And then it died again. This year feels like just something something a little more significant. And I do think Price, Price, there were signs last year that he was on, on the road back. And then mm -hmm. um, this year, he really seems like he's got it. And Porcello, who's seems like every other year he's good. That's fine. This is the year that he's good. They need uh, Eduardo Rodriguez to come back though. Cause I actually thought he was kind of a stealth, super duper sleeper Cy Young candidate potentially. Um, he was yeah. really coming. I wonder out last if he's summer. just one of those guys who looks like that coming up and just the like just never puts it all together. Just keeps I getting if hurt, we're reaching that spot with him. Well, when when he yeah. got hurt last year, he was pitching great, and and just had this dumb knee injury, and then all of a sudden was out, and it took him a while to get back. But it really felt like he was turning into something last year. So the the thing, yeah, they do have a lot of lively bullpen arms, which I think you need, especially when they start playing the Yankees and stuff. But Ben, don't you think like all of this is stupid because the Astros are going to win 120 games and none of this matters. <laughs> I mean, why, why do I even care? We're just going to get our asses kicked by the Astros. It's going to suck. Yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely going to happen. It all comes down to what happens in October. We don't have to repeat the same old cliches about October baseball, but they are mostly true. But let me ask you this. We said this on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. I never thought that the idea that the Yankees were just going to completely run away with this division was right. I thought that they were probably the better team, but that this was maybe the one division that would actually end up with a real race this year. So many of the yeah. divisions just seem sort of lopsided and they at least had two really good teams. And now we're two weeks into the season. The Red Sox got off to this eight and one start while the Yankees scuffled a little bit. So on opening day, the projections had the Red Sox with a 35% chance to win the AL East now, just because of these starts, and yes, it's only two weeks, but because of these starts, the Red Sox right now, as we speak, are right up to 50% on the nose to win the AL East. Is that where your confidence level is, or are you feeling it, or are you still having some misgivings? I think they're a safer bet. And I, I say this, and I'm, I'm never biased with the Red Sox. I'm always brutally honest. That I look mm -hmm, at the Yankees... Sure. I, I'm totally biased with the Celtics and Patriots, but the Red Sox, it's just, they've brought me so much pain over the years that I'm always able to look at them objectively. Um, You've been down I, on the Red Sox compared to to us, I think, over the yeah, last couple of years. I'm, I'm mean with the yeah, Red Sox. I don't Sox. know if it's objectivity. I think it's pessimism because I think you're about <laughs> yeah. the Red Sox about the way I am with the Eagles where like right. I'm just so angry at them for that lifetime of disappointment that... Like I always expect the worst, but yeah, it's, yeah, you were and also baseball is a fundamentally unhappy sport to follow most of the time. You're just always That's disappointed. So and, yeah, <laughs> when things go well, it's it's like you feel like they should have gone well. Um, but I was looking at the season going in. I was the Yankees. I just didn't understand why people were just penciling them in because I didn't trust the rotation at all. And Severino's been really good this year, but. He sucked in the playoffs last year. I don't think he was a sure thing. Tanaka sucked all season and then was good in the playoffs. I didn't feel like he was a sure thing. CeCe, at some point, just isn't going to have it anymore. And I don't know if it's going to be this year. He's already hurt or whether it's going to do that. But they were just penciling him in as, oh, yeah, and we have CeCe. And we have Sonny Gray, a guy who's really never never pitched a full season on a contender like this. And, I, and then Chapman for him wasn't good last year and was hurt and banged up and was running like he was an 85 year old man. But Tances was secretly not that good last year. Like he walked a lot of dudes. He was on my, he was kind of noisily not that good. Yeah. In, well, it's, in, but he had, places, big, yeah. he had the big K's and like he, everything, if you looked at the stats, everything kind of looked the same, but it wasn't the same. And I, I don't think he's been good this year either. Um, so I, I, I think that their pitching is what could, what could potentially doom them. But then on top of it, they have a million injuries already. And sometimes you have these weird baseball seasons yeah. where everybody just gets hurt and it's like a plague. 
and you can't, you, you know, you can't climb out of it. So um, I think this week will be, you know, I never want to overreact to an April series, but I think the Red Sox are catching them at a really good time. You know, this is, they could kind of yeah. live the smackdown. If they can get to Severino tonight and bat him around a little bit and get into their bullpen and, um, it would be pretty good for them. But I, I like this Red Sox team. I, I think this Red Sox team, especially if Bogarts isn't hurt, I think this Red Sox team has a chance to be really good. And they have they still have a trade to make. Like they have their version of the Verlander trade to make in July. Um, with all that said, it won't matter because the Astros are going to win 120 games and <laughs> destroy <Yeah>. everybody. <laughs> They're one, the best team I've ever one seen. Thing I'd say about the, one thing I'd say about the Yankees pitching staff real quick is I think the strength like beyond Severino is in their depth. Yeah, that like they can withstand a Sabathia injury. They've developed young pitchers so well over the past uh, over the past couple of years. Like Jordan Montgomery was a he was a South Carolina guy, so I watched him since he was eighteen, and he was a junk baller in college. And by the time he got to the majors, I asked him about this last year. Like one conversation with their single A pitching coach, he straightened out his mechanics and added four miles an hour to his fastball in a week. Yeah, and like they're doing this with college pitchers up and down their system, so. Like they can withstand the injury to it, like, and they don't need Gray to be an ace. They need him to be a number three, and so like they can withstand an injury to Sabathia and just call up the next guy. And they traded so well that they've got guys who are talented to begin with. But you so still I need. Think, I think the rotate. You still need like that, that big early September series where it's like Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and you're going against or one yeah. of the teams you're going against, and it's like, all right, let's let's all throw it on the table. What do we what do you got? And that was the I, biggest problem with the Red I Sox. Think Se- last year. I think Severino's that guy, and I think Tanaka's done that, uh, you know, repeatedly throughout his career. And with the rest, they can just make it work with the offense and the bullpen. And so what course, happened to Tanaka last year? Too, just right, like they, they can make a trade. Gray. Yeah, right. They can make a trade too. I, Chapman is the ultimate question mark for me with them, and. Just how much longer you just look at his body and it it's like a Greg Odin, Andrew Bynum type of thing where you're just staring at it going, How long can this guy do this? He just doesn't look like he's built to be a professional athlete, you know? It looks like at, he's like he's just gonna fall apart in sections. I don't I don't know what year it's gonna be, but um from a durability standpoint, I worry about that too. But Conley's been um he's he's been uh I, I really like that trade for them when they made it. I couldn't believe he was a throw in. They for, with, yeah, the, with the White Sox, he was sort of a pop up guy. Yeah, yeah, but his um, stats—he was striking out two guys an inning, and they were like, "Yeah, we'll throw him into your trade." I was like, "Fuck, this guy's good. Can you yeah. not throw him in the trade?" But uh, it'll be good. And again, it doesn't matter. Uh, the Angels thing is a fun, unexpected surprise, though, because I, I think mm-hmm. in general, it's just I, I've been waiting to have Trout kind of involved in things for a while just to see it. And uh, mm-hmm. I think it'll be fun to have them. Hopefully that continues. Yeah. And there's just, I mean, so many storylines that could develop over the course of the season. You have Mike Sosha in his last year as manager. He's got to manage the personalities. You have Albert Pujols, who's off to a decent start. But if Otani gets more playing time, it's probably going to come at Pujols' expense. And of course, he's on the verge of 3,000 hits now. So do you let him get his 3,000th hit and then sort of mothball him for the rest of the year? There's a, a whole lot of questions there that I think, if anything, Otani's great start has you know in- increased the number of un- Knowns. Well, it has it has the makings for a Hall of Fame regular season, right? Because it's always fun yeah. when the Mets are good. It's always fun when there's a manager that's already antagonized his entire fan base, like Kapler. Like that's been great. I like having <laughs> the Pirates back. The Cubs and Dodgers will be heard from. It's just like there's a lot of fun teams in the right places, and on top of it, like I really want to see if the Astros can 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 win. 120, like, I don't think it's hyperbole to talk about it. I've never seen a team with the combination of offense and pitching depth that they have. You know, like the other day, Ken Giles, they have to rest him. It's like, oh, we'll just bring in Brad Peacock and get the save. Like, they have an answer for every sort of bad situation that can happen over 162 games. And I really think they have a chance to go 120 and 42. I don't think it's crazy. I think the one thing that would be missing from this regular season is I I still don't know where the the, I think we need a classic division race, and I don't know where that's coming from right now. Maybe that's the AL East. Like if we get like an all timer of a Red Sox Yankees September, then you know, then that would certainly fit the bill. But I think the the division, at least five of these division races, are 
they don't look particularly competitive even a week into the season. The Central is going to be a, potentially an all-time train wreck unless the Indians can get going. That I mean, that could be like an 83 I think and 79. Will. I think they will too, mm-hmm. but you never know. Who knows? Yeah. And if yeah. the Mets actually it, managed to keep their rotation intact for a whole year, I mean, that was the question about them. I think they had the talent. It's just that until recently, they've never had their big five actually yeah, it, <laughs> take just, a turn in the it rotation. It just never so. occurred to me that they, <laughs> yeah, I thought they were going to get all four, right? Or I thought they were going to get four of those guys yeah. healthy for the exact six weeks they needed them in October 2015. Mm-hmm. And I didn't think we were ever going to see that again. So, well, you know, now that now that Philly's, Philly won the Super Bowl, so their fans are shockingly a, a, a wee bit more optim, optimistic than they used to be. I think the Mets fans now are the most fun fans to have involved in a we're doing well, but this is going to get fucked up. I know I'm not I'm not going to get my hopes up. I'm just going to get kicked in the nuts. Like their attitude toward this is is and we have some Mets fans at the ringer. And you've had a couple of them on this podcast. I think it's hilarious when the Mets are doing well. They don't know what to do. The fans, they, they're both optimistic <laughs> well, and been, pessimistic. Ben's been needling Sean Fennessy about this for <laughs> about a year and a half. Like yeah. Sean is all the time complaining about the Mets and Ben's like, the Mets aren't actually that bad. Right. Like, they're, they're, you know, they went to a too, World Series recently. Yeah, yeah by the way, they went to the World Series three they, years ago. They didn't earn it. Yeah, they've been a playoff team. They were in a wild card game a couple of years ago. The they, Mets fans just... act like, yeah, they've act, they act like they're, <laughs> they're like the fucking pirates after the Sid Breen play. <laughs> no. And meanwhile, they, they made the World Series twice in the last two decades. Each decade, they made the World Series and they one in 86, by the way, but right. they, they love to present themselves as this woe is me, unlucky franchise. They won the luckiest world series anyone has ever won ever. They were, they had, yeah, I don't know how much that matters now. I mean, like it should, ben and I it matters to me, Michael Bauman, it matters world to series. me. My heart is still broken. <laughs> <laughs> they had two outs, I don't know. Like, I don't, I'm just thinking about like a. You know, a twenty-year-old Blue Jays fan in 2015. I'm complaining about the '93 World Series to them, and they're like, "You know, that, I don't remember that. Yeah. All I remember is them not making the playoffs since that." There's it an is institutional true. memory, though, right? You you inherit your franchise's past sufferings and successes to some extent. I, I still get blamed for booing Santa Claus or throwing snowballs at Santa. <laughs> yeah, Claus. that is true. The yeah. silly fans would do, do get that. a bad rap with that stuff. I think <laughs> I put a lot of thought into this, and I think. 25 years without anything really that good happening is probably when you can officially say that you're tortured to some degree, because that means basically anyone 31, 32 and under has no recollection of anything positive happening. So mm-hmm. like if you're a Pirates fan, the, the, that whole season, which, which, and they had one of the worst playoff uh, exits of all time. I mean, I still think that's one of the four or five most devastating playoff losses I've ever seen in my life. But that was also 26 years ago. So not only has nothing good happened, but even that last thing wasn't good. And now you have to go back to Willie Stargell in 1979. You have to be, how old do you have to be? What's that? 39. So you have to be 45 years old as a Pirates fan to have really any positive memory whatsoever, which is insane. So I, I think I would, the- I would say they have the belt. That playoff drought and then breaking it and getting into just running into Arietta in a one-game playoff and then running into Bumgarner in a one-game playoff. Like the Johnny Cueto dropping the ball in the wild card game is the only good Pirates moment, you know, since the 90s. Well, not not to mention that that Bonds Bonilla team falling apart and then Bonds going to San Francisco and being the best player of that decade. And then becoming the most disgraced baseball player we've ever had. And that's like their signature guy. Like the combo of all that stuff is, is, uh, I don't know. I feel I, if you did a ranking of which fans do you feel the worst for, I think that, I think the pirates have to be in the top three. And but now they have I to think watch they're close. I Garrett think it's Cole and Andrew McCutcheon do good yeah. things for the Astros oh, and, my Lord. and the Giants. So <laughs> I think most tortured is, is the Mariners and it's not even close. Yeah, they're in there. Cause and the, I think mm-hmm. that do the Tampa Bay Rays have enough seasons back now to be in this conversation. Yeah. They've got a world. They've got a, yeah. they've got a pennant in the past 10 years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They've been good. They, they were good on and off since then. I think being um, in a division where you're also, just getting crushed by the Yankees and Red Sox every year and you get to spend one fourth as much money as them is pretty rough. You know? Yeah. I think that also, like, if you get so tortured, it turns you off. And I think that that's probably a problem in, oh, in Tampa Bay right wh- now. One last thing we should mention, just because we work for, all three of us work for her. 
Uh, we have to mention the Orioles or else Mallory Rubin will set us all on fire. <laughs> they have not had a, had a great run. I would, I would They're say. Uh, definitely not, tortured. Not there was a, wasn't there like a five-year stretch in the 2010s where they won more games than any other team in baseball? Yeah, they did. <laughs> Am I making that up? No, They've it's been true. Good recently. Yeah, since, in surprising ways. But yeah, since 82, the, the greatest thing that happened, the greatest thing that happened then was the Cal Ripken consecutive game streak, which in my opinion was the most boring record anyone's ever set ever <laughs> in the history. Right. Maybe Russell Westbrook's 100 triple doubles is up there. I don't know. But uh, I was there for the entire Kyle Ripken Iron Man streak, and it was not good. Let's just say that's not a thirty for thirty <laughs> in the works. It's like, oh man, he's out there again. Ah, oh, he went one for four. It's great, <laughs> professional. Right. Um, Do you know he? I I think he wore the same cup the entire streak. Ooh. I remember hearing him say <laughs> this in an interview once that Ripken had this metal cup that he got when he was a rookie, and he wore it for the entire streak. That's that makes it more impressive to total me. Total silence. <laughs> Don't know how to react to that. That's a good note to end the pod on, I think. Going going through hamstring, you know, hamstring strains and and uh, bruises and groin rot because he hasn't changed his jock strap in in twenty years. Okay, we can end the podcast on. Yeah, that. good one, good end. Groin rot is a great way to end it. Thank you guys. Thanks for having me on. All right. See ya. That'll do it for this week's episode of the Ringer MLB Show. I want to say thanks again to Zach Cram, Ben Lindbergh, and Bill Sim. Thank you to Shohei Otani, Michael Conforto, and everybody else who provided content for us to talk about. And thank you for listening. Enjoy this week's games, and we'll see you next time.